Would you all stand for the reading of God's word? Um, reading from John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Thank you, Abby. Well, good morning. I'm Hart Trailer, and if you don't know me, I am one of the pastors here, but it has been a while since I've been up here uh, to preach. I have been, I guess you could say, on paternity leave for a little while. Um, the Lord surprised us last year and blessed our family uh, with our third child, our third son, Joel. He was born in October. And so in preparation uh, for this new season of life with a newborn and uh, just to be able to serve my family well, I knew I needed to get some stuff off my plate and ultimately decided that preaching was one of those things that, that needed to come off. But um, my family is doing well. We are still not sleeping much, but we are slowly getting into a routine. And so I'm excited for the opportunity to be back up here uh, today to continue our study through John. Uh, you just heard it read by Abby that we're in John 17, and we're going to be covering 19 verses today. And this chapter is known as the High Priestly Prayer. Jesus has just finished what is known as his farewell discourse, which covered chapters 14 through 16. And so now here in chapter 17, he's going to conclude this time with a prayer. And in this prayer, we see Jesus pray for three things. First, he's going to pray for himself, which we see in verses 1 through 5. Then he prays for his disciples in verses 6 through 19. And then finally, he'll pray for future believers in verses 20 through 26. And if I'm honest with you guys, as I've been preparing this sermon this week, I've thought to myself several times, 
we probably should have split this up into three sermons at least because there's a lot here. It's very rich and it's packed with so much. Um, But we're going to cover it all in two sermons. And so we're going to trust that by God's providence, we needed to hear these 19 verses today. But I share that to say just that I've struggled a little with how to prepare this sermon. On the one hand, I don't want to skim the surface so lightly that we walk away with nothing. But on the flip side, I don't want to be a fire hose and overload y'all with so much that our heads are spinning and we still walk away with nothing. And so what I'm going to try to do is highlight and zero in on some key things we see in the text. And then my hope is that for all of us is that we're going to see the depths in this text. We're going to see how rich it is. And then in the coming days and weeks, we're going to take it upon ourselves to go and dig more into the word of God, that we're going to mine the word of God on our own and in our own time. A study came out recently that said Americans spend an average of three hours a day on their phone. And so I checked my screen time and I fall right within that average. And I looked at the apps that I consistently use and I pretty much spend my time looking at social media and reading the news. And um, I was thinking about it. When you go to those things, what do we typically find? We're consistently finding in social media, we're finding in the news, we're finding chaos. They're places of chaos. And Jesus says in Matthew 15, whatever you consume, whatever you put in your heart and your mind, that's what's going to shape you. So it shouldn't surprise us when we're consuming the chaos of the world that our hearts and our minds feel that chaos. And so as your pastor, my hope this morning is inspired by Psalm 23. I hope to lie you down in the green grasses and lead you to the still waters of the word. This is where we need to be. This is what we should be consuming. God's word is what we should be regularly putting into our hearts and our minds. And so my hope and prayer for each of us this morning is that we'll see how good and how pleasant and how sweet, how nourishing, how rich the word of God is. And that his word is the thing we need to continue returning to for nourishment. So before we dive in, let me pray. God, thank you for another Sunday and another opportunity to gather with the saints to worship you. Bless this time as we study your word. May we taste and see how sweet and good your word is. As we study your word, may we see the beauty and the radiance of Christ. And may the things of this world grow strangely dim. Make our hearts receptive to your truth and allow me to proclaim your truth in love and with clarity and with boldness. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In John Bunyan's famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress, there's a moment in the story where Christian, who's the main character, he is about to enter the valley of the shadow of death. But just before entering, several men come running out, and they tell Christian the valley is terrifying. It's pitch black. They heard monsters howling. They heard people crying out in anguish. And they tell Christian, if you want to live, don't go in there. And so Christian is conflicted because he's making his way to the celestial city and the path to get there requires him to go through this valley. But he's also scared by this report. So he weighs his options and ultimately he decides to continue on his journey and so he enters the valley. But just as those men said, it proves to be terrifying. He's consumed by the darkness. He senses monsters and creatures surrounding him. And he hears horrible, scary noises. And so Christian, while in the valley, becomes filled with fear. And he begins to wrestle with what he should do. 
Should he press on or should he flee? But when it seems like all hope is lost, Christian hears a voice of another man saying, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And when Christian hears this, he's filled with hope and courage. He's reminded that God is with him even there in the darkness. And so this truth propels him on in his journey. And Christian will ultimately get through the valley. And when he gets on the other side, the sun rises and it illuminates the valley. And he realizes how much worse the valley actually was. He sees the monsters and the scary creatures and the dragons. He sees how narrow the path was. And that on either side, there were dangerous cliffs and fiery pits. And so he also ultimately sees that God was with him and how God protected him and guided him through the valley. As I've been preparing this sermon, my mind kept recalling that moment from Pilgrim's Progress. And so my hope is that as we study this text this morning, this prayer that Jesus prays, it will encourage and it will embolden us, similar to that moment when Christian heard the 23rd Psalm in the valley. Now, I briefly mentioned this earlier, but let me give some quick context and background. Ever since chapter 13, Jesus and his disciples had been in the upper room, and this is where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. He washed the disciples' feet. He foretold of Judas' betrayal. He also said that Peter was going to deny him. And then after, Jesus, uh, after Judas left, Jesus begins his farewell discourse. As Randy reminded us a few weeks ago, he, he, these were his farewell words to his disciples before the crucifixion. And so then here in chapter 17, he concludes this time with a prayer. And as I said earlier, it's, it's, it's broken up into three sections, but we'll cover the first two today. So let's start with that first section, which is, begins in verse 1. So John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus begins his prayer by saying, the hour has come. The hour that he's referring to is the cross. He's referring to his death, burial, and resurrection. He's referring to the plan of salvation that Titus 1-2 says had been promised before the ages began. It's the plan that God revealed in the garden to Adam and Eve when he said the serpent will bruise the heel of your offspring, but he will crush the serpent's head. And so Jesus is saying that hour has come. The time has come for me to have my heel bruised by the serpent and for me to crush his head. And then he says, glorify your son. So what does that mean? I think Philippians 2, 6 through 11 helps provide clarity. I'm going to read that for you, but I'm going to read it as though it's from Jesus's perspective. Though I was in the form of God, I did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But I emptied myself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. I have humbled myself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God, highly exalt me and bestow on me the name that is above every name, so that at my name, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that I, Jesus Christ, am Lord." For your glory, Father. So Jesus the Son, the second part of the Trinity, is saying to God the Father, the first part of the Trinity, we have had this plan in place before the foundations of the world were laid, and the hour has come for me to complete my mission. And just like we planned, I have taken on the form of man, 
and I'm now going to humble myself to the point of death. So Father, after you raise me back to life, lift me up, exalt me, glorify me, seat me at your right hand. This is what Jesus means when he asks the Father to glorify the Son. And this is not a selfish request by Jesus. He's not trying to steal God's glory. In fact, he has reminded us several times over the last few chapters that he and the Father are one. Therefore, they share this glory. Jesus is saying, by glorifying me, you, Father, will also be glorified. So Jesus asks the Father to glorify him. And then in verses two through five, we see what's accomplished through Jesus's glorification. We see three results from him being glorified. The first result is eternal life. In verse two, Jesus is speaking of himself and he says, you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. So through Jesus being glorified, the father gives Jesus the authority to issue eternal life. And Jesus promises to give that eternal life to those that the father gives him. And we've seen Jesus use this language of the father giving to the son several times before. John 6, 37, he said, all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And then in John 10, 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So Jesus echoes this truth once again here in chapter 17. The father draws us to Jesus. He gives us to Jesus. And Jesus promises that when he does that, he will grant us eternal life. So the question is, what is eternal life? And Jesus answers that in verse three. He says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is knowledge of God and Jesus. But the knowledge is not simply an intellectual knowledge. It's not like having the knowledge to do math or play an instrument or build something out of wood or uh, you know, knowing a bunch of random trivia or something like that. It's an intimate knowledge based on personal relationship. So let me give you an example. I may intellectually know some facts about Billy Graham, but I've never met the guy. But I do know someone who is the granddaughter of Billy Graham. And so her knowledge of Daddy Bill is much more intimate because she knows him. She had a personal relationship with him. So the knowledge that Jesus speaks of is an intimate knowledge. It's based on personal relationship. And this reminds me of our study from this past summer in John's epistles. In 1 John, John spoke about koinonia, which means fellowship. And we learned that our koinonia with God, our fellowship with God had been broken due to our sin. But through Jesus, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, our koinonia is restored. So eternal life is an eternal, intimate fellowship with the Father and Son. So one result of Jesus' glorification is that he has the authority to give eternal life to those the Father draws to him. The second result is that we, the second result we're reminded of is Christ's imputed righteousness. In verse four, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
Jesus is saying, I perfectly obeyed you, Father. I did what no other human can ever do. I perfectly loved you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I perfectly loved my neighbor. I perfectly fulfilled the law. And through Jesus's glorification, his perfect obedience becomes our own. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ, who knew no sin, became our sin so that we, in Christ, who know no righteousness, can become the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us. What does impute mean? It's the opposite of amputate. Amputate, you cut something off from your body, you remove it. Right? You cut a limb off from the body. Impute is to add something that doesn't belong to you and attach it to yourself where it becomes your own. So if you are in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to you. It's attached to you, and it becomes part of who you are. So when the Father looks upon you, he sees the perfect obedience of his Son. So we see eternal life. We see Christ's imputed righteousness as results. And the third result is an eternal high priest who always intercedes for his disciples an eternal high priest who always intercedes for his disciples. Verse five, Jesus says, and now father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus reminds us here, his rightful place is with the father. And he's been preparing the disciples for this over the last few chapters. He's mentioned several times, I'm about to leave. I'm about to return to my father. So a result of his glorification is he will return to his rightful place with the Father. And Hebrews chapter 12 says he will be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, what's he doing there? He's there right now, so what is he doing? Well, over Christmas break, Vanessa and I, uh, we decided to let our two oldest uh, start watching through the Marvel movies. And so we've been working our way through it. And um, we all got a kick out of that scene at the very end of the first Avengers movie, which if you don't know Marvel and Avengers, they're just a bunch of superheroes. But this one particular Avengers movie, at the end of the movie, they fought this big battle. They've won. And then at the end of the movie, they're all in this diner and they're eating and they're just exhausted. They just, you can see on their face that they are wiped out. They are exhausted by what they just went through. So is that what Jesus is doing? When he was on the cross and he said, it's finished, was he saying, I'm done, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I'm worn out, I need a break? And then when he got to heaven, did he tag the Holy Spirit and say, you're it, it's your turn to go down there and deal with them? And then he plopped down in the chair next to the Father and said, all right, I need to recharge my batteries for a little while before I return to earth? No, that's not, of course that's not what he's doing. Hebrews 7 tells us he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus' resurrection proves he cannot be mastered by death. Therefore, he continues forever and holds his priesthood permanently. He is our eternal high priest, and he has been and is currently, and until the day he returns, he will remain at the right hand of the Father, interceding to the Father on our behalf. So we see in these verses three results from Jesus' glorification. We, have, we see eternal, eternal life, which is an eternal, intimate fellowship with God and Jesus. We see Christ's imputed righteousness. 
And then we see an eternal high priest always interceding for his disciples. And it's this third result, Jesus interceding for us, that we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. So verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. And then in verses 6 through 19, he shifts his attention and begins praying for his disciples. Now, technically, at the moment of this prayer, he didn't have many disciples. He's basically praying for the 11 guys in the room with him. But if you are in Christ, then you are a disciple of Christ. And therefore, his prayers for his disciples extend to us. And I want to point out something unique about this passage. We see Jesus spend countless hours praying in the Gospels. But the content of those prayers mostly remains hidden from us. Of the prayers that have been revealed to us, most of them are short snippets. But chapter 17 is unique because it's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus that we've been giving, given. And I think it's very gracious and kind of God to have preserved and revealed this prayer to us. John MacArthur describes this moment like this. The veil is drawn back and we are escorted into the Holy of Holies. We approach with our Christ, the very throne of God. We come into the inner chamber of the Trinity, the sanctuary. The secret place of the tabernacle of the Most High is open to us. So this prayer is unique, not simply because of its length, but because it also gives us a glimpse into what it looks like when Jesus intercedes to the Father on behalf of his disciples. So as we look at this prayer of intercession, there are four things that I want to highlight. First, our identity in Christ. Who are we in Christ? Or more importantly, who does God say we are in Christ? Verse 6, Jesus says, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus says, Yours they were. We've already talked about this, Jesus using some of this language before of the Father giving us to the Son. But here in chapter 17, Jesus uses this language seven times. So seven times, Jesus is going to refer to us as a gift from the Father to the Son. Now, you can't give something unless you what? Unless you own it. It's yours. It's your possession. So God giving us to Jesus means we are God's possession. But we're not a worthless trinket that God gives to Jesus because we have no value and God doesn't care what happens to us. A few years ago, we got some junk mail from a car dealership and had this little key attached to it. And so we took it off and gave it to our kids because there was no value in that key. And so we let them have it. We didn't care if they broke it or lost it. We are not a worthless piece of junk to God. And I know this because of what he says of us in Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, Moses says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. If you are in Christ, then God says you are his treasured possession. A parent is not going to give their child a treasured possession unless they're confident the child understands the value and the child is trustworthy. I gave my small children that key because it was worthless and I didn't care what happened to it. But at that time in life, I would not have entrusted my keys to them because they would have probably lost them. But God has confidence in the son. Through his words and actions, Jesus demonstrates he understands the value and he is trustworthy. The Puritan Thomas Watson said it this way, once in Christ and ever in Christ, a star may sooner fall out of its orb than a true believer be plucked away from God. Once in Christ, always in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are God's treasured possession. 
And if we are in God's possession, God is confident he will neither lose us or allow the enemy to pluck us from his hand. So we have every reason to be confident of this as well. Now with that in mind, let's shift gears for a second and look at verse 12. Jesus says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus is referring to Judas Iscariot. And notice he said, I haven't lost any of them except one. So is Jesus contradicting himself? Is Jesus showing himself to be a liar? Look at how Jesus referred to Judas. Jesus Jesus calls him the son of destruction. That's Judas's identity. Jesus is indicating Judas's identity is not one who was in God's possession. Judas was not saved and then lost his salvation. Jesus is saying Judas was never saved. And the reason he was included as one of the 12 was to fulfill the prophecies of scripture. And I know that's a hard truth to wrestle with. Why does God save one person, but not save that person? And I don't have an answer for that. It's a mystery. And it's okay to ask those questions and it's okay to wrestle with these mysteries. God's not intimidated by our questions or with us wrestling with him. But when we're faced with these mysteries, and we ask these questions and wrestle with these mysteries, the proper response by us is to go to God in humility and to submit to the reality that God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. If our minds could fully grasp and comprehend and understand all of who God is, all of his character, all of his will, then he would be a puny, small, no God who is unworthy of our worship. So there's a mystery to it. But even while there are mysteries, God has also graciously revealed truths to us. And one truth he has revealed is that outside of Christ, we are no different than Judas. Outside of Christ, we have the same identity that Judas has. Just as he was a son of destruction, Ephesians 2, 3 says, we were children of wrath. That was our identity before Jesus. But Paul goes on to say, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in Christ, our identity changes. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We were once children of wrath. But by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, our identity changes and we become God's treasured possession. But this is important. What does Jesus go on to say in verse six? He he identifies us as as being possessed by God. And then he says, they have kept your word. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, because you have kept God's word, God has made you a treasured possession. No, while we were yet sinners, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we had no worth in us Christ died for us and made us alive together with Christ. He made us his treasured possession when we had no worth in us. Therefore, in response to this great news, out of gratitude for what he has done, we obey his words. We keep his commands. And of course, we don't keep his word perfectly. That's why earlier we talked about our need for Christ's righteousness to be imputed to us. Martin Luther described it this way. Simul justice et peccator, which is Latin and translated means simultaneously just and sinner, 
or more popularly translated, simultaneously saint and sinner. And what Luther meant was in one sense, because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, we are saints. But in another sense, as long as we are in this world, we are sinners who will wrestle with our flesh. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5, 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The spirit within us is at war with our flesh. And keep this in mind, when Jesus says they have kept your word, he knows the guys in the room with him are not going to perfectly keep his word. He's already said Peter's going to deny him. He knows the rest of them are in a matter of hours are going to run off and hide because they're scared. The 11 men in the room with Jesus will not perfectly keep his word. And though you are a disciple of Christ, you will not perfectly keep his word either in this life. But here's the beauty. If you are in Christ, then you are his disciple and he always intercedes for his disciples. And that's why John says in 1 John chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In the book of Zechariah, we're told that Satan is accusing us before God. He is rattling off all of our sins. But Jesus is there to intercede and advocate for his own. If you are in Christ, then Jesus silences Satan and he says to the Father, this one's mine. See, my righteousness is upon them. I have already bore your wrath for this one. So we're reminded here in Jesus' prayer that in Christ, our identity changes from children of wrath to God's treasured possession. Therefore, out of gratitude for what he's done, let us strive to be doers of the word. The second thing we see in this prayer is Jesus prays for our unity. In verse 11, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus says, God, just as we are one, may they be one as well. Jesus prays we remain unified. And notice what unifies us. He says, keep them in your name. Back in verse six, Jesus says, I manifested your name to them. So Jesus is saying, I share your name. So we are unified in the name of Christ. Our politics, our skin color, our opinion on what's going on in the world, uh, where we fall in the income bracket, where we live, our likes, our dislikes, those things do not unify us. We are united in the name of Christ. Jesus has done the work of reconciliation. And because of that, our koinonia with God has been restored and our koinonia our fellowship, our communion with each other is restored. And that's why men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation can be united in the name of Christ. It's the name of Jesus that has the power to break down all the dividing walls. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, it's in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near and made one, for he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility And Paul says in Galatians 3, it's in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. You've been baptized into Christ, which means you have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So in Christ Jesus, we are united and made one. How then do we demonstrate this unity? Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are mine 
if you have love for one another. We prove our unity. We prove our oneness in Christ by loving each other with Christ-like love, which means we bear one another's burdens. We care for the orphans and the widows and those that society has rejected and forgotten. We lock arms to help defend those who can't defend themselves. We don't neglect gathering together to worship God and we speak psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. When our brother or sister sins, we rebuke them in a spirit of gentleness to see them restored. And when we are confronted in our own sin, we repent and humbly seek restoration. When we disagree with each other, we honor and respect one another. We apologize and seek forgiveness when we have wronged others. And when we've been wronged, we don't hold record of that wrong. Instead, we offer forgiveness even when forgiveness may not have been asked for. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And just like Paul in Philippians chapter one, when he identified what would be best for himself to be with the father, and he identified what would be best for the church, he be with the church. And he saw those two things oppose each other. He was willing to die to self. He laid his desires aside and served his brothers and sisters so that their faith could thrive and flourish. Y'all, when we love each other the way Christ has loved us, when we love each other with this radical love, the world will take notice. And Jesus says, they will know you are mine. They will know you belong to me. They will know that we are united in Christ. And so Jesus prays for our unity because our unity impacts our witness. The third thing in this prayer, uh, Jesus prays for our preservation. Verse 13, he says, But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So in these verses, Jesus alludes to persecution from the world as well as spiritual warfare. And here in his prayer, he prays for our preservation. He prays for both our protection and our perseverance. Now I want us to notice what Jesus identifies as the solution. And to do that, we'll first look at what he says is not the solution. Did you catch what he said in verse 15? He said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So Jesus says the solution is not removing us from the persecution or the trials or the sorrow or the suffering. The solution isn't to put us on some distant island where the world and the evil one can't get to us. The solution Jesus points to is actually twofold. He first points to God as our protector and sustainer. He identifies God several times as the one who keeps us in his name and who keeps us from the evil one. God is the one who has the power to protect and sustain us. Not angels, not our own abilities, not the strong or the wise amongst us, not our wealth, not our possessions. As the psalmist said in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength. He is our very present help in trouble. 
And the good news is that not only is God able, he's willing. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says, The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So Jesus is praying for our preservation. He's praying for our protection and perseverance. And we see that we are dependent on God for that protection and that sustaining. But there's another part to the solution, and it's specifically related to our perseverance. In verse 13, he said, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So Jesus is asking God to fill us with his joy. Why would he pray that we be filled with his joy? Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame. Jesus is praying that we be filled with the same joy that was set before him. And what was the joy set before him? Hebrews 12 goes on to say, he will be at the right hand of God. So the joy that was set before him was returning to his rightful place and being in fellowship with the Father. And he's praying we would be filled with that same joy. The joy of eternal life, which if you remember, is an eternal, intimate fellowship with the Father and Son. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Jesus is praying we be filled with his joy because his joy is the only thing that can help us endure persecution and trials of various kind and suffering and sorrow and even death. Only the joy of eternal life can help us persevere. Only Jesus's joy has the power to turn the sorrows of this world into light momentary afflictions. And the only way we can be filled with this joy is when we abide in him. John 15, 4, Jesus said, abide in me and I will abide in you. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy be complete. Jesus is saying, when you abide in me, my spirit will abide in you and you will be filled with my joy. The same joy that enabled me to endure the cross and despise the shame. And John 15, 7 tells us that we abide in Christ when his words abide in us. We abide in Christ by filling our hearts and our minds with the word of God. We abide in Christ by submitting ourselves to the authority of the word. We abide in Christ when we let the word of God shape and prune and transform us. And that leads to the fourth and final thing I want to highlight. We've seen Jesus pray for our unity. He's prayed for our preservation And he also prays for our sanctification. In verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus prays for our sanctification because that is God's will for us. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So what is sanctification? It means to be set apart to God for his use. Philippians 1.6 tells us we, that God has begun a good work in us and he will bring it to completion. And that good work is the process of sanctification. It's the process of, con- of conforming us 
into the image of Christ. And that is God's will for us. His will is for us to be holy as he is holy. His will is for us to not resemble this world, rather to resemble his son. His will is for us to be set apart from the world. And Jesus says the way we are sanctified is through truth, which is the word. Paul in Romans chapter 12 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. God's word renews our mind. Truth, which is the word of God, is the tool that God uses to transform us into the image of his son. God's will for us is to be sanctified or set apart. And this is accomplished through his word. And the reason his word has the power to sanctify us is because of what we read in verse 19. Jesus said, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I love this quote by R.C. Sproul describing this. He said, Jesus is the great high priest, but he differed from all other priests in Israel in this manner. Not only did he as the priest offer the sacrifice that was necessary for atonement, but the sacrifice he offered was himself. So Christ was both the subject and the object of his priestly work. In the upper room, our great high priest was sanctifying himself, consecrating himself, setting himself apart for the task that lay ahead of him. If Jesus had not consecrated himself, if he had not offered himself up as the sacrifice, if Jesus had not died, then his word would not be truth, and therefore it would lack the power to sanctify. But because Jesus willingly set himself apart, we, his disciples, can be set apart by his word. And so that's why Jesus says in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Just as the Father sent the Son into the world to declare eternal life, Jesus sends his disciples who are not of this world, but have been set apart. He sends us into the world to declare eternal life. Or as Peter says it in 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so here in the second section of Jesus' prayer, when he prays for his disciples, we see that in Christ, our identity has changed. And we also see Jesus pray for our unity, preservation, and sanctification. Now, if you recall at the beginning, I shared a moment from the Pilgrim's Progress, and I explained how I kept thinking of that story while preparing this sermon. I was thinking of Christian being consumed by the darkness and how he was so terrified he was tempted to flee. But when he heard the 23rd Psalm, he was reminded God was with him even in the darkness, and this filled him with courage to press on. And so in one sense, my hope for us is that in those moments of life when the darkness surrounds us and God doesn't feel near, we would remember John 17 in this prayer that Jesus prayed. We would remember that at this very moment, we have a great high priest who is interceding for us on our behalf. I hope and pray that that will embolden us. The reality is that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us and is praying for us and interceding for us, that that will embolden us to press on. When Vanessa and I walked that cancer road with one of our boys, we experienced some dark days, 
There were moments we were so weary and the darkness was so consuming that we couldn't even find the words to pray. And so we took comfort in the promises of Scripture like Romans 8, 26. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We took comfort in Hebrews 4, 15, that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. So in one sense, I hope, or my hope is that when you find yourself in those valleys, the Spirit will bring to mind these words that Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago, and that it would embolden you, you'd be emboldened by that knowledge that he is still interceding for you. But I think, something I've wrestled with is, I think if I ended my sermon there, then I run the risk of cheapening this reality that we have an eternal high priest interceding for us. Because the context into which Jesus gave these final words and offered this prayer was not simply to say, hey, when you have a hard day, remember that I'm interceding for you. He was saying, I'm getting ready to leave. And when I leave, you're gonna take my place. I'm gonna send you into the world to continue my mission, to continue proclaiming the gospel. And that's why Jesus warned them of the world's hatred. The world hated me to the point that they're gonna put me to death. And now that you're taking the baton, they're gonna hate you too. But rather than spare us from this hatred, Jesus says, I'm gonna send you into it. He says, I set myself apart so that you can be my people set apart to proclaim my message of eternal life. The world around us is in chaos. Hatred, evil, and wickedness abound. And Jesus says, I'm sending you into that. I'm sending you into this world to declare a message of hope. But I wonder, have we become content with passively sitting on the sideline and enjoying the luxuries that America offers? Or perhaps, does the hatred and the persecution of the world scare us into silence? As we look at the chaos going on in the world around us and we watch the world fall apart, it's so clear how desperately this world needs this message. And we have been tasked as the ones to to, to deliver that message. We must begin engaging with those around us. We cannot continue sitting back, being silent. Yes, we will experience persecution. Yes, we will experience trials and sorrows. And yes, Jesus says you may even face death for that. But those things compared to eternal life are light momentary afflictions. They pale in comparison to the joy we will experience when we are finally in an eternal intimate fellowship with the Father and Son. Brothers and sisters, May the reality that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame on our behalf motivate us to forsake the comforts of this world. And with his joy set before us, let us endure persecution, sorrow, hatred, and perhaps even death in order to take this message of eternal life to a dying world. And when, not if, but when, the darkness surrounds you in those moments, I pray that this prayer in chapter 17 will ring out loud and clear in the darkness. I pray you will be reminded we have an eternal high priest who is interceding for us. I pray you will be filled with courage to press on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the incredible truth that through the glorification of your son, Jesus has the authority to give eternal life 
and he promises to give it to those you give to him. Thank you that his righteousness has been imputed to us so that when you look upon us, you don't see our sin, our filth, and our failures. Instead, you see the, perf- the perfect obedience of your son. And thank you that in Jesus, we have an eternal high priest who always intercedes for us. God, it's truly astounding that while we were sinners, while we were dead in our trespasses, while we were children of wrath, Christ died for us and you extend salvation to us through your son. Thank you that it's not based on our works. Rather, salvation is available to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Thank you for redeeming us and making us your treasured possessions. And in response to this incredible truth and reality, may we spur each other on to be doers of your word. And Father, just as Jesus, our elder brother, our co-heir, prayed for us, we also pray for each other. We pray for our unity. May Midlands be a church known for its union in Christ. May your global church across our state and country and around the world be known for displaying the love of Christ to one another. We pray for our preservation. Thank you that not only are you able to protect and sustain us, but you are willing to protect and sustain us. And Father, as we abide in you, fill us with Christ's joy so that our joy may be complete. And finally, we pray for our sanctification as well as for each other's sanctification. As we abide in your word, renew our minds and conform us to the image of Christ. God, set us apart for your own possession so that we would proclaim the excellencies of Christ who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We pray all of this in his name, the name that is above all other names, the name of Jesus. Amen.